Uh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, we'll be just looking at Ephesians 6, uh, the second half of verse 14, but I'm going to read uh, just to remind us where we've been, uh, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. So it's been a couple weeks since we've been in our series going through the armor of God. Uh, but to remind us where we've been, it's been these verses up to verse 14 that we've been walking through. So far we spent a morning considering uh, verses uh, 10 to 13, and we, we considered the reality of spiritual warfare. And so for us, it was a lesson in spiritual warfare. And a few weeks back, we dove into the first piece of God's armor that he gives to us, the belt of truth. We talked about it's not the most glamorous piece of armor, but it is essential. It's essential and foundational. And so for us, it was a lesson in sound doctrine the belt of truth that in this battle against satan the father of lies we must root ourselves in the truth we say this is the literally the opposite message that we hear from the world around us but the fact is according to god's word there is an absolute truth that truth according to paul in chapter one of this very letter he says is the good news of our salvation and so today we find ourselves looking at the next foundational, uh, important, uh, defensive, and preparatory piece of armor in the spiritual war. Is in having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. It's a big word, big Christian word. What is righteousness? What does it mean? I looked up the official definition. It's the quality of being morally right or justifiable. Merriam-Webster tightens it up a little bit more. She says morally good. That's what it means to be righteous, to be good, to be morally right. She says to be righteous is to be in right standing. It's to do the right thing. And so as we talk about this big word, righteousness, this morning, I want to make three statements about righteousness, things that we know and can take away this morning statement one you are not righteous statement two jesus is righteous statement three therefore put on the breastplate of righteousness three statements and when you hear if you've been around the church for a period of time you're like okay those sound normal right those sound, they make sense but if you really think about those three statements you are not righteous jesus is righteous therefore put on the breastplate of righteousness the math doesn't add up. It's like one plus one equals three. There's, there's something wrong, and we can address that as we go. If we say, you are not righteous, we'll get into that a little bit more. Jesus is righteous. We'll get into that a lot more. Therefore, put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
hope we all come away this morning with a clear picture of what that means, what that means for you this morning. And for this math to add up, we know something, we can't just take these statements at face value. We need to look at these statements and think, how do we put this together? There's some kind of a substitution that needs to happen for the math to add up. If we are to put on righteousness, something big needs to happen. We can't do it on our own. And so this morning, as we've looked at each section of the armor of God so far, it's been a lesson in something. This morning, I want us to consider the breastplate of righteousness a lesson in substitution. I know it's another big word. Righteousness and substitution. We'll we'll get into it. But in order to stand against the devil's schemes, again, that's the context of our passage this morning, we need to put on the armor of God. And so our big idea from our passage, and I didn't have it in the bulletin this time. That wasn't on purpose. That was just to, you know, to demonstrate my lack of being good, I guess. Uh, no, it was just a mistake. But the big idea this morning, which is not in there, is stand in what Christ has done for you. Nice short one this week. Stand in what Christ has done for you. Again, you may be remembering these verses that have come before, before where we are this morning. There's a lot of language about standing in this spiritual war. And so our big idea is stand in what Christ has done for you. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, you picked a great Sunday to be here. This is the same good news, the same anchor that we hold to and proclaim every Sunday. But I hope, especially this morning, it is explicitly clear to you how good this news is that although when we look at the world around us when we look at our own lives and we see the disconnect we see that we have all fallen that we all sin against god and we look at him and his perfect righteousness we feel the disconnect we see the dissonance but i hope this morning you see clearly that that god intervened he made a way to fix that dissonance And kids, this morning, I want you to listen really closely. I know we've already talked about some big words, substitution and righteousness. But I want you to listen closely. Because when we talk about what it means to be righteous or unrighteous, or when we talk about what it means for Jesus to be righteous, this is super important. Super important. I'll tell you when something's really important. This is really important, okay? So I want you to pay attention, because this is our hope. This is what it means to be a Christian. I'm not a Christian because my parents were Christians. I'm not a Christian because I'm a good person, because that's not true. There's nothing I did that, that saves myself. I can't save myself. But what it means to be a Christian, when we talk about salvation, when we talk about righteousness, when we talk about substitution, it's what God did for me. And so this is why this morning it is really important that we talk about these things. And so this, this afternoon, even, I would love for you to talk with your parents about this topic. What does it mean to be righteous? Am I righteous? Am I good? Talk with your friends after the service. Actually, that's a good one. Get written into the, the heavy stuff about righteousness, you know? But it's really, really important that we work through these things. And I want you to pay attention because I'm going to share with you one of my favorite quotes. You know I like quotes. I'm going to share one of my favorite quotes in the whole world. 
right, that I think says so clearly this message that we all need to hear, that articulates in such a significant way why this is such an important topic for all of us, all right? So keep your ears tuned for it, okay? It's a quote I've said before, but it's a good one. Would you pray briefly with me as we enter into studying God's word? Lord, we come to you humbled but grateful for your word. What we have not, give us. What we know not, would you teach us? And what we are not, would you make us? Through the power of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray and ask these things. Amen. All right, point one. You are not righteous. You are not righteous. I know that feels like a bit of a downer right off the hop. That's a heavy accusation to just lob at someone. But it matters when we're talking about righteousness. If you and I were perfectly righteous, this would be a one-point sermon. Right? We would read the second half of verse 14 of Ephesians 6, and we would say, uh, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, I'm supposed to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Done. But the thing is, we know that we can't have a one-point sermon with this because we are not righteous. We need to expand this a little bit. The command is that. That is still a point. That is still the point. But we need to expand it. There's a few important checkpoints along the way. Uh, this might make you cringe, but it's like showing your work in school. Remember when you had to show your work? You know, you with me? No, I always got in trouble for this because I, I might even get the right answer. Too often not. But I had to show my work. As we walk through these points this morning, these statements, I think this is a helpful way for us to show our work. Because if we jump to the answer of just put on righteousness, I think we miss something really, really important. It's important that we see why and how we put on this breastplate of righteousness. And so again, what is righteousness? Well, it's doing the right thing. To be righteous according to the Bible is following and obeying God's commands. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe... He knows how things should be. He knows what is good. He is perfect. He is holy. He is perfectly righteous. And so what is the opposite of righteous or righteousness? Well, I mean unrighteousness, but wickedness, evil, sinfulness. The opposite of righteousness is all that is wrong. I was joking with Josiah this week. I want to create a word, wrongteousness. You know, it's the opposite of righteousness, wrongteousness. Since God is perfectly righteous, he cannot be and is not wicked. He's not sinful. He's not unjust. When he created us, he created us in his image to glorify him. Kids who have been going through our catechisms, you would know how do we glorify him? What's the answer? By loving him and by obeying his commands and laws. So we honor him by obeying him, and he gave us a job to do, to rule and have dominion over the world. Yet, from the beginning, we fell short. We were not righteous, we were wrongteous. And as silly as it is to, you know, make up words, it's serious business. From the very beginning, the first man and the first woman sinned, and we haven't stopped since. We've each turned our own way. We've decided that God's laws don't need to apply to us or that we should massage them or tweak them in some way that, that appeals to us more. We ignore, we 
reject God in the world that he created. We want to be Lord over our life. We don't want to have a Lord over our life. This is really what it comes down to. When we look at everything that we would call sin or the Bible calls sin, we can ask these questions. Why do we lie? Why do we steal? Why are we unkind? Why? Well, because we care more about us than we care about the God who created us. We care about our reputation. We want power and control. We want comfort and security. We want fame and approval. And we may not make little or big sculptures and bow down to them in worship, but at its core, all of our sin, all of our rebellion against God is idolatry. We worship an idol of some sort. We make idols out of all of these things. And this is what I've talked about before. Author Tim Keller calls these root idols. It captures pretty much all of our unrighteousness, if we think about it. Our desire for power and control. Our desire for comfort and security. And our desire for fame and approval. And so this is what we do. We lie. Well, why? Because we want approval. We steal. Why? Because we want comfort. We hurt others. Why? Well, because we want control. And so we sin. We fall short of the glory of God. Remember, God is perfectly righteous. And so our sin is not just a demerit point. It's active rebellion against God. Against who he is at the very core. And so the wages, the Bible says, the penalty, the payment for sin is death. By sinning, we separate ourselves from God. And someday that separation, because of our sin, is made final. Our wish by sinning and separating ourselves from God is granted. Now you may be sitting here thinking, man, this is a heavy point, but I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. I, I try to be good. I try to do the right thing most of the time. At least some of the time, I try to be righteous. Even if that's true. I find that illustration so helpful. Of uh, It's like one drop of poison into the glass of water. It makes the whole thing poisonous. Is that, that drop doesn't just stay as that separate poisonous drop. Just like that sin, that unrighteousness in your life doesn't just stay as that little, you know, oh, it's, I, I got... I got that control of that thing. No, it, it taints your whole being. It distorts and disrupts that relationship that you can have with God, who again is perfectly holy and righteousness, righteous. Our sin separates us from God. I find it helpful how one author puts it. He says, if you fail to live up to God's perfect standard only once a day, it would come to 365 sins per year, or almost 26,000 sins in the average lifetime. And once in a day would be a remarkable accomplishment for any of us. What positive good can we set against that? Perhaps we have done a few good deeds here and there. But these were only the things that we should have done anyways. Even if we do the right thing, our motives for our actions are often horribly mixed or entirely selfish. So then I will earn the death penalty more than 26,000 times in my lifetime. And my only defense is that some of the rest of the time... I was doing what I should have been doing. That's a sad state of reality for us. And that may feel heavy. It should feel heavy. But this is in line with what the Bible teaches, that 
all deep down, I think we all know this, that no one is righteous. No, not one. It says that in Romans 3. And just a few verses later, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yes, Christian, I'm talking about you too. This is true for us. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We find ourselves in a serious predicament. How are we called to put on this breastplate of righteousness when we simply aren't righteous? We face an absolutely impossible task. An impossible task. When I was thinking about an impossible task, as I was preparing this sermon, I don't know why I couldn't get out of my head uh, this idea of bowling. I think because when we talk about sin, sin sometimes we describe as missing the mark. We've missed the mark. So I was just thinking about bowling for some reason. And if I was thinking about imp- how is bowling impossible, it'd be like bowling with a balloon. And so I have an actual balloon, little object lesson for us. Imagine you were bowling with a balloon. You face an impossible task if you're the perfect righteousness you need is a perfect strike. Right? What chance does a balloon have at going the 60 feet needed? That's like even more than the length of this stage. I measured very scientifically with the length of my arms, okay? But it's at least the length of this stage. So how, what chance does this balloon have of going that whole distance? And even if it did go that whole distance, how would it knock down 10 pins that weigh three and a half pounds each? I googled that. It stands no chance. And I experimented with this. Sometimes I did a soft throw. Sometimes I did a hard throw. But honestly, the best effort is just piddly. How on earth could we get a strike? How could we hit the mark that we need? But again, maybe you say, Pastor Aaron, I'm pretty good. I do some good stuff. You know, I give my money away to the poor. I didn't cheat on that test. I was honorable in my job. My righteousness isn't like your gross red balloon. My righteousness is a gold balloon. It's, it's, it, look at it. It's beautiful. It's shiny. Let's give it a shot, right? 60 feet. I'm trying. This is half. Half, right? Don't stand a chance. And this is what the Bible talks about, our righteous deeds. If we think about them as salvific, that we can somehow earn our salvation because of our righteous deeds, it says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags compared to the righteousness that we need. The best cost that we could have with our balloon, no matter how beautiful it looks, no matter how we dress it up with our attempts at righteousness, it's not good enough. It's the difference between the righteousness we have versus the righteousness that we need. Now, if you've spent a lot of time around the church, you know that the gospel means good news. And I'm with you that up to this point, sure, we're playing with balloons, we're making up words, but this is bad news. This is bad news for all of us. And this would be bad news if if we stopped here, if this was the message of Christianity, that by simply being a good person was to be a Christian. If that was true, there would be no Christians. But see, the message of the Bible is good news. It isn't a message which says your righteousness earns your salvation. That hopefully you tip the scales just enough. Maybe a gust of wind comes and carries your balloon down the bowling alley. That's not good news. That's impossible. And so the good news is that point one isn't the end of the sermon. It isn't the end of the story. 
So yes, we can and should say, I am not righteous. But point two, this is a big one. Jesus is righteous. When Paul writes to the Ephesians to put on the breastplate of righteousness, as we considered a few weeks ago, the stakes are high. Spiritual warfare is a reality. Remember, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's big, right? Feels heavy. Especially when we look at ourselves and we hold up that mirror to our own unrighteousness. How can we stand? How can we stand? But we need the same reminder on each piece of armor. That the prescription here is don't be strong in yourself in the strength of your might. Put on your armor. That's not the command. That's not what the Bible says. It says be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God. God sees us with all of our desperation. He sees us in our futility trying to bowl with a balloon. And he saw that we were not righteous And so in his mercy, in his love, he sent his own son into the world. He sent Jesus to come as a baby, to grow among the people he came to save. To face the same struggles as us, as a man. And as a human, he could have come and and sought after those same idols that, that pull at us every single day. He could have sought power and control, but he didn't. He came as a servant. He could have gone after fame and approval, But he didn't. He didn't try to draw a crowd for a crowd's sake. And he could have come and pursued comfort and security. You know, maybe he could have come and been in a palace. You know, certainly with all he could do, he could have climbed the ladder. But he didn't. His love for us brought him to the lowest of the low. Not just earth, but death. Not just death, but death on a cross. Not just death on a cross, as horrifying as that is, that physical death. He took on the punishment for our sin. He faced all that we face, and yet he never sinned. He lived a perfectly righteous life. This is what was prophesied about him time and time again through the whole Old Testament that pointed towards Christ, one who would come to save humanity. Josiah read for us earlier from Isaiah 61. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Again, in Luke 4, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, and he says that it's about him. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Isaiah. We'll we'll go back even. It's more explicit in Isaiah 59. God's people had rebelled against God. And the conclusion was the same as we've found so far in point one of the sermon here. You are not righteous. Isaiah 59, verses 12 to 15 says, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back, from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. 
justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So hear this, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. And so they acknowledge like us, you are not unrighteous. But God saw and God would do something about it. Continuing in verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. Sound familiar? And helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And looking down just a few verses to verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. We have a clear view from our vantage point of looking backward at how God brought about this rescue mission, how God brought about this redeemer that's promised hundreds of years before Christ came. And we get this perfect picture of one who would come and wear this breastplate of righteousness. Yet would die for all of our unrighteousness. He wore that breastplate of righteousness all the way to the cross. He's the only one in all of history that didn't deserve death. Yet he took on death for us. Death could not hold him though. He stood in our place, a place that we could never stand on our own. He took our punishment and he rose from the dead. He demonstrated that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied. And why? Well, again, this is our lesson for today. A lesson in substitution. He did it so that he could sub himself out for you. That if you would turn and trust in Christ for salvation, if you would turn from your, your old way of trying in futility to just be a good person, to live a good life, to bowl with a balloon. If you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation, you could be made right with God. That peace with God could be restored because Jesus substituted himself for you so that when Jesus looked, or when God looked at Jesus on the cross, he would see your sin. And when he looks at you, he would see Jesus in all of his righteousness. This is the core message of all of this for us. This is, this is why this topic matters. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 famously says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is good news. This is the gospel that you and I could now know peace with God if we would turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone and his righteousness for salvation. All right, kids, you've been paying attention well. Here's time for the, the quote, all right? The quote I told you to be listening for. Adults, you can listen to. Can you guess who it's by? Take a gander. Oh, Jesus, that's... That'd be better. Yeah, no, this one's by just a, uh, a, a sinful man like us. Gunner, Gunner, hey, that's a good one. That's a good guess, yeah. John Stott, right here. There we go, John Stott, that's good. 
John Stott wrote in his book, The Cross of Christ, he said this, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. I know there's a lot of words that went by fast. I'm gonna read it again, but it's in your bulletin. There's a section of quotes at the end, okay? The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin or our unrighteousness is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. This is really what it's all about. Our unrighteousness, our sin because we've gone our own way. That's our rebellion against God. We've put ourselves in a place where only God deserves to be. And yet the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God put himself where only sinful humanity deserves to be. There isn't better news in the world. This is the essence of substitution. This is the essence of the gospel. Again, this is the best news in the world, whether you've heard it now for the first time or for the thousandth time. And if you don't think this is the best news in the world, you can be assured you didn't hear it right. The breastplate of righteousness is essential. Think about what the, the role of the breastplate is. It protects your vital organs. It's this either a steel plate or mail or a combination of chain mail and a steel plate of some sort that served to protect your vital organs. It was an essential piece of armor. And we can have confidence because Jesus wore that armor for us first. This piece of armor that we can't bear the weight of has been and is being carried by Christ. And so we can't even stop here at point two. We could. You are not righteous. Jesus is righteous. But we see that there's more to it. Paul exhorts the Ephesians to put on this breastplate of righteousness. And in one sense, if you're a Christian, you have. This is what it means to be a Christian. You have Christ's righteousness credited to your account. That's what it means to be saved. Not because of what you did, but because of what Christ did for you. And so another, uh, another fancy word or big word or word that we can use for this, we talk about this righteousness being imputed to you. But again, that's not the end. This is righteousness imputed, but it's also imparted. We are called as Christians to actively pursue righteousness. And so point one, you are not righteous. Point two, Jesus is righteous. And point three, therefore, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And this is an important question for us to ask this morning. Because of the gospel, how must I live? What should change? Well, we considered a few weeks back that as we talked about truth, we talked about making truth the root of your life and letting truth be the fruit of your life. And so it's the same for us this morning as we talk about righteousness. We need to let it be the root of our hope as well as the fruit in our life. It must change the way we live. And we've seen this clearly multiple times through Ephesians. You have a new identity as a Christian. Paul addresses this letter of Ephesians to the saints who are in Ephesus. And again, we've talked about this a couple times, but who are the saints? Well, saints just means those are the Christians, those who have been set apart. Not perfect people, but they have a new identity. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, 
He talks about this identity. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We've been adopted as God's children, welcomed into the family of God, and we are called to reflect him. We're to be holy and blameless. The examples are constant, and it gets more and more explicit as the book goes on, or as this letter goes on. It says, we are not saved by good works, very explicit in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But he does say we are saved for good works. In verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Then, verses later, in chapter 4, it says that we are to put on a new self. Chapter 4, verses 24. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This taking off of old clothes of this old self and putting on these new clothes or this new self that's created after the likeness of God certainly comes to mind when we think about putting on his armor, doesn't it? And then in Ephesians 5.1 really summarizes this whole idea, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And then a few verses later, it says that we are to walk in the light. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And so to rightly understand the gospel is to rightly apply the gospel. And to rightly apply the gospel is to be obedient to what God commands. We aren't saved by our righteousness or good works. But since we are saved by grace alone, we are now created for righteousness. We are saved for these good works. And so, although we in and of ourselves are altogether unrighteous, we are called to wear this breastplate, to put on this new self, to walk in the light, to imitate God. Again, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, I've said this before, but I think this is one of the hardest verses in the whole letter. And I think it's because so easily we slip into thinking of us trying to earn our righteousness. How can I imitate God? How can I do that on my own? I'm, I'm so unrighteous. Well, it's clear. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. And if you're anything like me, if you hold up that mirror in your own life, you know that too often imitating God is not how you would describe how you spend your time. But the good news of the gospel, that's for our salvation. It's Christ's righteousness that saved us, and it's Christ's righteousness that should and must change the way we live. This afternoon, it'll take you 15, 20 minutes max to read the book of Ephesians. Read the book of Ephesians with your family, with your friends, and consider the times where you see clearly the gospel explained, and then a direct connection with how then you're called to live because of the truths of the gospel. Here in Ephesians 6, we see the immediate context. We see a reason why this matters. Remember, this is spiritual warfare we're talking about. Not against flesh and blood. And so just like a breastplate protects your vital organs, Satan's attacks will undoubtedly be where you are most vulnerable. 
because it's discouraging at times to think about that Satan knows these sermon points too. He knows you, and he definitely will attack what your understanding is of your identity in Christ, where your righteousness comes from. He's going to try to remind you that you are not righteous and have you forget that Christ has been perfectly righteous for you. Now, it's good for us, again, we've talked about, to reflect on our sin, reflect on the state of our lives. Right? And although the Bible describes us as saints, we're saints who still sin. But when we think about our sin, that should drive us to the cross. It should drive us to the cross. Our desperate need for salvation is part of the good news of the gospel. That we can say with confidence, I don't deserve his mercy, yet I receive it. It's how we can sing a song like we did a minute ago. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Think about that statement. That's a bold claim. In Christ alone, my hope is found. AKA, I have no hope anywhere else. The good news is that we do have a hope. In Christ alone, my hope is found. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the onslaught of reminding you of your depravity that Satan will do is different than us reflecting and acknowledging our own sin. His goal is for you to forget your identity in Christ. His goal is to remind you of your lack of righteousness. His goal is to have you forget and even question that God in his mercy would give you this free gift of grace. We've seen this as Satan's MO from the very beginning. What did he say to Eve? Oh, did God really say? He will attack your vital organs, your very identity with these lies. Say, look at how you failed God. Yeah, he might be willing to forgive, but not a sinner like you. Maybe he'll even take the opposite approach. So you know what? You are a pretty good person. That sin, yeah, you know that sin that you can't kill on your own? You keep it in the dark. You've got it under control. It's not that serious. These are the lies that he'll throw at you. In the allegory of the Pilgrim's Progress, Apollyon, who represents the devil, tries to shame the pilgrim Christian and turn him from following God. Apollyon attacks Christian with all these accusations of everything Christian has failed in doing. He says, remember that time you did this? Remember that time you did this? Remember that time you forgot this? Remember that time you ignored God in this? But I love Christian's response. He says, all this is true and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon from my prince. What a response to the accuser. Yeah, you may accuse me, but I'm even more unrighteous than you say. Yet I can't outsin his mercy. By his righteousness, I am counted as righteous. And now I live for him. We can remember Paul's well-known words in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 39. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? This is how we can stand with confidence. It is how you can stand in what Christ has done for you. Again, this chapter, this section of the Bible that talks about the armor of God is not a call for a mercenary mission to go in Rambo-style, defeat evil, and kick down the gates of hell yourself. That's not what we see. You are told to stand. Stand your ground. And how can you stand and be counted as righteous? You can stand in Christ's righteousness. And you can live your life to glorify God. You can put on righteousness as your new identity because Christ has worn that breastplate of righteousness before you ever did and because you never could on your own. It is this imputed and imparted righteousness that makes up this vital organ-protecting armor that we must wear, that is a gift from God. Gigi Finley writes this, The completeness of pardon for past offense and the integrity of character that belong to the justified life are woven together into an impenetrable mail or armor. I'll say that again. The completeness of pardon for past offense, righteousness imputed, and the integrity of character that belong to the justified life, righteousness imparted, are woven together into an impenetrable mail. Reflect on this cosmic story of substitution that saves you. And as you do, ward off Satan's attacks by wearing Christ's righteousness as your armor. Put it on. You need it. And it's a gift from God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your son, for the fact that we stand in a place where we have no business standing, that you would call us righteous because of the gift of your son. You call us to stand. Lord, help us to remember that that it's not just a call for us to get our act together, but first it's a call to surrender, to acknowledge that yes, we are not righteous, but oh yes, Jesus is righteous. We thank you for the confidence that we can have, that we can stand, that we can put on your armor. God, help us this morning, whether we have heard this a thousand times, or if there's anyone here who does not know this glorious truth, help us to acknowledge the fact that you sent your son for us. Thank you for your grace that we don't deserve, yet you freely give. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.